a spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week. Firstly, off the back of Svetlana Moronets' piece in last week's magazine about Ukraine's changing curriculum, Kieran Pym has written about what young Ukrainians will learn from the works of the author Joseph Roth. Then, Miranda Morrison reflects on why she quit her profession as a teacher before Cosmo Landersman asks whether successful writers can be friends with less successful ones. First up, Kieran Pym. As Russia's assault on Ukraine continues, Volodymyr Zelensky's Ministry of Education has just announced changes to the national curriculum that include removing almost all the Russian authors on the foreign literature syllabus. In last week's Spectator, Svetlana Moronets revealed the new names. We see Robert Burns, whose inclusion may be a nod to Britain's support during the conflict. Then there's Joseph Roth, a master of German prose, whose writing about interwar Europe speaks to Ukraine's modern upheavals. Roth was born in 1894 in Brody, a town that now stands in western Ukraine, but then lay in what was known as Galicia, the eastern Austro-Hungarian crown land. He left as soon as he could, and rarely returned, but wrote about it from afar with increasing nostalgia until he drank himself to death on the eve of the Second World War. Equally brilliant as a journalist and writer of fiction, Roth's short and frantic career produced countless newspaper articles alongside 17 novels and novellas. Some of them are classics of Middle European literature, but too many were hastily knocked out when a publisher threatened to reclaim the advance Roth had already spent on drink and the expensive hotels he preferred to live in. His fiction switched from a series of brisk contemporary 1920s stories to a post-1930 collection of near-historical novels that chronicle a crumbling empire. As he wrote in his late novel The Emperor's Tomb, people call it the World War, and, in my view rightly, and not for the usual reason that the whole world was involved in it, but rather because, as a result of it, we lost a whole world, our world. In reading his greatest work, The Radetsky March, 10th grade students in Ukraine's schools will undergo an immersion in a long-gone world whose decline is described over three generations of the Trosser family. Written in the early 1930s, while Roth watched aghast as nationalism devoured Europe, this sad book has many joys, not least the delicate way he describes the sun setting on the multi-ethnic polyglot empire whose collapse he mourned, in which Jews, Czechs, Slovenes, Ukrainians, Poles, Germans and others lived alongside each other. A deeply conflicted man, by turns proud of and in revolt against his Jewish origins, Roth saw sooner than most what the fall of Austria-Hungary and rise of nationalism would mean for his fellow Eastern Jews. We are drifting towards great catastrophes, he wrote to a friend in 1933. Apart from the private, our literary and financial existence is destroyed. It all leads to a new war. I won't bet a penny on our lives. They have succeeded in establishing a reign of barbarism. Do not fool yourself. Hell reigns. Roth's work describes conditions that Ukrainians have come to know well. 
Like many from that region, he grew up with Russia breathing behind him, a theme he plays with in his novels Flight Without End, Tarapas and Job. Roth understood the subtler forms of violence that war enacts upon the mind. Beyond witnessing death, injury, destruction and grief, he explores war's insidious effects on characters who had been uprooted, severed from their homes and left stateless, forced to alter their identities as exiles and refugees, wary ever again to unpack their suitcases. The tension of living in the hands of politicians and generals. People like Roth, and like many Ukrainians today. He learned what it was to inhabit this condition after serving in the First World War, when Austria-Hungary was carved up. His hometown became part of the new Polish Republic, and the culturally German-oriented Roth discovered he was now a Polish citizen. It took until 1921 for him to regain his Austrian citizenship, a battle he won with some dubiously acquired documents, which caught up with him seven years later, when he again had to trawl through the anti-Semitic Viennese bureaucracy to prove himself the Austrian he knew himself to be. He became painfully aware of what it was to have one's liberty curtailed and identity reshaped by changing borders. Freedom to cross national lines was integral to his livelihood as a reporter for the Frankfurter Zeitung, as he made plain in a letter to a colleague in 1928. Without a passport, I'm toast. Roth left Berlin on the day that Hitler took power, and he lived his remaining six years in Parisian exile, rootless and despairing. What, he asked in 1937, in a preface to a new edition of his famed essay, The Wandering Jews, is a man without papers. Rather less, let me tell you, than papers without a man. By that time, he, like innumerable other refugees, had been stripped of agency to a point whereby, quotes, life nowadays hangs from a passport as it once used to hang by the fabled thread. The scissors, once wielded by the fates, have come into the possession of consulates, embassies and plainclothes men. In his newspaper work, Roth traced Europe's decline in the 1920s and 1930s, initially as a celebrated reporter whose boundless energy propelled him around the continent, filing luminous, wry, relentlessly perceptive dispatches for the Frankfurter Zeitung. Soon he was on the Nazis' list of banned authors, the Radetzky March and other books having been burnt in Berlin. Articles written in exile such as The Third Reich, Agency of Hell on Earth, and Europe is Possible Only Without the Third Reich, are as fearless as their titles suggest. But he was just as damning of the far left as of the far right, having reported from the USSR too. A six-month exploration in 1926 disabused the former socialist of any remaining illusions about Marxism. It proved pivotal in his conversion into a conservative monarchist who would devote his pained final years to a quixotic, doomed bid to reinstate the Habsburg monarchy, which he believed was the only force strong enough to resist the rise of Nazism. The journey around Russia not only ended his infatuation with socialism, it also triggered the end of his marriage. While he roamed between Odessa, Moscow, Baku and the Caucasus Mountains, Friedelroth, nay Reichler, remained alone and abandoned in Berlin, sinking into a state that would eventually see her permanently consigned to psychiatric care. It was at this point that Roth's drinking developed from excessive to compulsive. He too began to fear he was going insane, 
as is clear from his correspondence with the novelist Stefan Zweig through the mid-1930s. Friedel's fate echoed that of Roth's father. Nachum Roth went insane before Joseph was born. His father, his fatherland, his wife. These losses combined with the self-imposed loss of his original identity as an Eastern Jew. Roth's relationship to the patch of Eastern Europe where he grew up was as complex and antagonistic as any element of his fractured psyche. He was torn between seeing the Ostjuden he left behind as admirably simple and contemptibly backward. In sophisticated Berlin and Vienna, the word Galicia was synonymous with provincial squalor and illiteracy. Roth became an unsustainable mass of painful paradoxes, attempting to scrub away his embarrassing past and assimilate in the West, even adopting the Catholicism of the Austrian aristocracy he so admired. As he once observed of himself, he was, quotes, a Frenchman from the East, a humanist, a rationalist with religion, a Catholic with a Jewish intelligence. What an oddity! Marooned in an existential borderland between the self he abandoned and the person he had tried to become, Roth became an increasingly inert alcoholic. He spent his final years of exile in Parisian cafes, gulping brandy, and channeling his formidable rage into broadsides against Nazism. Three years ago, when the suggestion that Vladimir Putin might invade Ukraine was widely laughed off as Russophobic hyperbole, I explored Roth's hometown to understand how it shaped his extraordinary life. Brody was once known for the vibrancy of its Jewish culture, but there are no Jews there now. The town, under Polish rule after the First World War, came under Russian occupation after the Hitler-Stalin Pact. When the Wehrmacht moved in, the remaining Jews were either killed near the town or sent to concentration camps. The house on Vlitsjitzelotte, or Goldgasse, as the German-speaking Roth knew it, is no longer standing. But many nearby from his time remain. Roth's secondary school, the former Royal Imperial Kronprinz Rudolf Gymnasium, where he dazzled his teachers with his poetic German prose and sharply analytical mind, is still there too. When I visited three years ago, the school chose two of its current star pupils, teenage girls named Nostia and Salomia, to answer my questions about its most famous alumnus. Did they want to read his books? Yes, we do, because it's our history. He's maybe the most popular person from Brody from that time. A lot of tourists from Germany and Austria come here and are very interested in Joseph Roth. A lot of us are interested in him because when so many people come to us and ask about him, it's not normal that we don't know about that person. But are his books part of the curriculum here? Unfortunately, no. More than a century on from Roth's school days, he is reinstated as a canonical German language author. Ukraine is resisting Russian power, and pupils at his old school now have the opportunity to study his masterpiece. As ambivalent as Roth felt about calling this patch of Eastern Europe his home, he would surely have raised a glass to that. That was Kieran Pym. Next, Miranda Morrison. For the past four years, I have worked at an academy in Hackney. I was deputy head of maths for three of those years and head of maths for the final term, managing 16 staff. After nearly a decade teaching in the state sector, I'd finally worked my way up to a well-paid and respected position. But this summer, I walked away from it. I'm not alone. The profession is hemorrhaging talent. 
Data from the National Education Union published earlier this year revealed that 44% of teachers intend to leave the profession by 2027. Retention in London schools is particularly poor. The reasons why teachers quit are complex, but there are a few common themes. One is exhaustion. When I told a friend that during the peak of term I was working 12-hour days and that a standard day is about 10 hours, they responded, isn't that pretty normal for most jobs? Well, no, for these 10 or 12 hours barely contain a single moment to yourself. There's no hour-long lunch break, no popping out for a coffee or a cigarette. It's non-stop and frantic. Things are constantly going wrong, whether it's dealing with a fight on the staircase when you thought you finally had time to go to the loo, or manically running around to find a photocopier that isn't jammed three minutes before your class arrives. And you are pestered, constantly. Children are needy. Staff can be even worse. The exhaustion is cumulative. I'm an energetic teacher, yet a few weeks into term, my feet would get sore, I'd get skinny, dehydrated, with itchy hands from irritating board pen ink, bruised thighs from knocking into desks, bad skin, a hoarse throat, a sore jaw and colds that I couldn't shift. Even Sundays were filled with lesson planning and marking. Half terms were for sleeping and life admin. Then it would start all over again. The second big issue was the pupils themselves. I'd be lying if I said that they weren't the reason I left. But it's also true they were the reason I stayed for as long as I did. During my first term at the Hackney School, I had to earn the respect of my pupils. Behaviour was challenging, and there were days when I thought I had made a terrible mistake by taking up a position there. In time, many of the naughty children became favourites, and I knew I could get through to pupils whom others couldn't. It takes a lot of patience to develop strong relationships. A good teacher is relentless in maintaining high standards. This too is exhausting. Another strain of the profession is the class sizes. In my first school, as a newly qualified teacher, I taught a mixed ability year seven class of 32 children. There weren't even enough desks. At the same school, a friend currently teaches a GCSE history class of 33. Many children have learning difficulties, but rarely a teaching assistant. To deliver consistently engaging and dynamic lessons and to provide for such an enormous range of personalities and learning styles is unsustainable. Financial mismanagement and cuts have left many state schools with one option, to over-enrol. Each secondary school pupil is worth around £6,000 in funding, so over-enrolment provides a much-needed boost to a school's coffers. The cost, however, is an unreasonable level of responsibility for teachers. There are days when you feel you are being driven mad, packed into the classroom like sardines. Things go wrong, and when they do, there are no obvious solutions. If you have a particularly naughty class, you might be advised by senior staff to kick the worst-behaved children out. What if that's the majority of the class? Do you perpetuate the culture of pupils missing hours of lessons all in the name of maintaining high behavioural standards? Or do you persevere, let them off and keep them in the classroom because they're better off in a learning environment than in a reflection room again? There are no easy answers. Then there's all the follow-up admin. Detention paperwork, duties, restorative meetings. The next step is to get their parents in. It's never-ending. Parental engagement has suffered greatly due to COVID. Good schools will strive to improve this, while the problem will deteriorate in less good ones. Though to be candid, I won't miss having to deal with the parents. 
Every so often, you get some who couldn't care less about their child misbehaving. They're rude and entitled. And it makes perfect sense that their child is the way they are. But the worst parents are the ones who act as if they've done you a huge favour by sending their lovely bright child to the school and cannot comprehend the notion that their darling offspring has either misbehaved or underachieved. Another big issue for me as head of department was dealing with a significant minority of incompetent lazy staff. There is a noticeable trend post-Covid of long-term absenteeism. A proportion of the profession seems to be suffering from terrible anxiety, or they claim they have tested positive and are too ill to even provide cover work. Some have taken months off, meaning their classes have been merged into other classes in order to prevent the kids missing out on huge chunks of education with cover staff. Again, this further balloons class sizes. To compound matters, there is a new generation of ECTs, or early career teachers, who have spent barely any time in the classroom. They're two years behind where they need to be as they haven't been able to make mistakes in a supportive environment. They're often lacking in a strong work ethic. When I started teaching, I was still in school at 8pm, but friends of mine have told me that their ECTs waltz out the building at 3.45. Recruitment is also in trouble. It's not uncommon for school leaders to send every candidate home without an interview because their lessons were so bad. Interview lessons often lack creativity and vigour. And those are the ones that were given a chance. Many are blocked before this stage because their applications are so dire. Indeed, I was constantly amazed at the shocking standard of applications we received from teachers unable to write cover letters properly or adequately complete application forms. Fundamentally, it's hard to teach maths well when a school places high demands on its teachers to prepare for a dreaded offset inspection. The focus on delivering specific lesson structures on the quality of work and exercise books, on training and data and targets, prevents teachers from being experimental and innovative. If the motivation behind raising the quality of teaching in a school is based solely on being graded as good with outstanding features, or of pupils attaining higher than expected levels of progress, then the joy of learning is undermined. This year, I took a step back and realised that I might get to 38 and be on a great wage, in an intense managerial role, but with no partner and no children. I learned that the demands of such a role are hard to meet if you care about family. During the winter terms, I would prioritise my job over everything. It cost me my relationship and time being with my mum while she was undergoing chemotherapy. No job is worth that. The saddest part of all is that teaching should be about one thing, engaging and exciting children with your subject. When I left, my pupils clubbed together to get me a box of Ferrero Rocher and a card that dozens of them signed. One wrote, Thanks to you, maths has become my favourite subject. You've taught me to constantly put my best efforts forward and advance in maths. It was from a child who I thought detested my lessons and couldn't be bothered. In every school, the impact that teachers have on the lives of their pupils is immeasurable. The ongoing exchange of ideas between staff members affects the children's lives in ways that should never be underestimated. There were days when I thrived on the fast-paced nature of the job, when every lesson gave me a buzz, when I laughed so hard I cried. That's why I'd be lying if I said I won't miss it. That was Miranda Morrison. And finally, Cosmo Landersman. You might have noticed the numerous glowing pieces by friends of Salman Rushdie about their brave and brilliant friend. 
I too would like to write a glowing piece about my brave and brilliant friend, Salman Rushdie, but there's one little problem. I'm not a friend of Salman Rushdie's. In fact, I don't have any famous novelist friends. I used to. There was the occasional lunch with Nick Hornby and the odd debauched evening with Will Self. I've drunk whiskey with Norman Mailer and smoked pot with Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I have a lovely thank you letter from Edward St. Alban. Does that count? The fact is, I could never be friends with Rushdie or Amos, Zadie or Rooney, because successful writers can only be good friends with other very successful writers. That sounds cold and cruel, and it is. And that's why writers pretend it isn't true. But it's the basic thermodynamic law of literary life. Successful authors stick to their own kind. They go to the same literary festivals, drinking clubs, award ceremonies, and dinner parties. For all their championing of egalitarian ideas, they constitute an elite that is based on success. The American critic Terry Knight once wrote a funny account of going to a dinner party that starred Lou Reed, Susan Sontag, Laurie Anderson, and the artist Marina Abramovich. Knight was treated like the invisible woman, unspoken to for the entire evening, even by her friend Susan Sontag, because she was not a successful person. No one likes to believe that success in whatever field of human endeavor is going to change them fundamentally. Who could be so superficial as to dump a good friend because of their lack of success? After all, you share a history. You were best friends at university. You were the best man or bridesmaid at their wedding. You support the same football team and love the same writers and the same bands. You're even a godparent to one of their children. So why should anything change when one of you becomes a big success? And then their book gets published, it's a massive hit, and everything changes. Not at first, but incrementally. At first, you're happy for your friend. And then along comes book hit number two, which receives critical praise and wins various awards. That's when the little voice inside your head says, hold on, it's not that good a book. That little voice will grow over the years into a munch-like scream with each new best-selling novel of your successful friend. Meanwhile, your book came out and bombed, or it got some polite notices. You can't help but notice that successful friends blurb for the cover of your book was rather perfunctory. Quote, really good. Your second book, the best thing you've ever written, can't find a publisher. Every time you meet your successful friend, they ask, any news? As if your book is in hospital, undergoing treatment for some incurable illness like terminal failure. Time passes, and with it, the possibility that your book will ever find a publisher. Your book has become an awkward topic of conversation for both of you. Then one day, they stop asking about your book. Are they, you wonder, being sensitive to your plight, or are they now just so self-absorbed the way successful people are, that they've forgotten that you have an unpublished book. The dumping of a less successful friend is not a conscious decision. It happens organically and spontaneously. You've stopped writing and are teaching a course in creative writing at the University of No Hope. You and successful friends start to move in different circles. They go to the literary parties you used to be invited to. At first, successful friend will ask you to come along you decide it's too awful going as the successful author's best friend. You go to a book launch and some sexy PR girl gushes all over your friend and then turns to you and says, what do you do? 
and you make some lame joke about being the successful person's personal assistant, which makes everyone feel awkward. Then you start seeing less of each other. Successful friend has so much work on, including finishing the screenplay of his fifth best-selling book, which Netflix has bought the rights to. You have the odd catch-up lunch, where the successful friend just talks about his success in meeting famous writers and his new best friend, Salman Rushdie. And you wonder, were they always this self-obsessed? And then it hits you. This should be the subject of your next novel. That's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week. Thank you.